Hey, this is Lee Snow. I'm the preacher of Orange Springs Road Church of Christ, and this is our podcast. I wanted to thank you for downloading today. I hope it inspires you. I hope it builds your faith. I hope it gives you a perspective to see what God wants to do in your life, and I hope it challenges you to a faithful tomorrow. All righty. Good morning. Good morning. If you want, you can go ahead and open up your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, and I'll meet you there here in just a second. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We have been studying on Wednesday nights a series of lessons on our summer series about evangelism, how to effectively communicate the gospel from the pages of Scripture to a person who you know in your family or in your neighborhood or in your job, in your office, so forth. And um, then last week, I was asked to go speak over at Crawford um, on a series of lessons that they're doing throughout the year about letting your light shine. And since we have our summer series going now, and since uh, we met last week over at Crawford, a couple of us were over there, I thought we'd study the same thing because I think it's pretty important. So we're going to talk about letting your light shine in the community. How can the church, as the individual or as the group, or as the congregation, however you want to look at it, how can we impact our community, especially Columbus? Listen, okay, Columbus is a big city with big city problems and lots of people, right? If you add in Phoenix City and Ladonia and um, majority of Russell County and a little bit of Harris County and, you know, the people that, if you were to ask where do you live, they'd probably say either around Columbus, Georgia, or in Columbus, Georgia, or so forth. You count the base and everybody else. We're about a 400,000 person community. That's a lot of people. We're a church of 100 people. How in the world can we do anything in a city, in an area of 400,000 people, with a hundred people. This past week, I was sitting down with a friend of mine um, who is not a member of the Churches of Christ. And um, he asked me, what are you doing for the rest of the month? And I said, well, here in the next few weeks, uh, I'm going to PTP. And he said, what's that? And I said, polishing the pulpit. It's uh, the largest convention for members of the Churches of Christ in the world, as far as we know. Um, This year, they're looking at about 4,500 people gathering in Sevierville, Tennessee at a convention center in a hotel there in Sevierville. And he said, wow, that's amazing. I said, yeah, it's a, it's a big production. They have, a, they have a, a first century village that they set up in one of the event halls so that you can walk through a first century village. They've got all these booksellers. They've got, at any given time, six, seven, eight lessons going on at once. Somewhere around 400 lessons will be presented from the 17th to the 24th of the month of August. That's a lot. It's a lot of work, right? 
He said, that's amazing. Who puts it on? And I said, oh, 10 people in Jacksonville, Alabama, and they don't even have an office because it got knocked out by a tornado. And he went, wait, what? You know, it's amazing what a few number of people can do when they are on the same page and working for Christ. Now, that being said, it's important for us to realize the, the importance of community when we're talking about the church. Um, I think a lot of times Christians think that we are on it, we're just in this alone, that we're just, we're islands unto ourselves. And we come to church and we look fancy, we put on our nice clothes and we, we come and somebody asks us how we're doing and we say, oh, we're great. You know, the kids are starting back to school, we're not telling them, you know, how it really is. We don't tell them the problems that we have. We don't, we don't confess our needs and, and so forth to each other. And we just live as islands to ourselves. In Genesis chapter 1, God created man in his image. In whose image? In, in, not in the Father's image. Not in the Son's image. Not in the Spirit's image. God created us in his image. In the image of the Godhead. That means that we have the ability to get angry like the Godhead has the ability to get angry. That means we have the ability to love and the ability to cherish things. That means we have the ability to have, to have laughter and, and experience sorrow and grief. That means that we have the ability to make decisions in and of ourselves that no one else makes me do anything. I can make myself do something or I can choose to not do that. And that's, that's, why, that's how we're built in the image of God. In doing that, he created us to need each other. In fact, just after that, when man is alone, he says it's not good for man to be alone. What? I'm going to make for you a help me so that you can have someone with you. I asked someone this past week, why did God create the church? And he just kind of looked at me. And he said, so we could go to heaven. And I said, no, why did God create the church? I can go to heaven without the church. I mean, how do you, how do you get to heaven? You just follow the commands of God, right? I, I theoretically could do that by myself. Why did he create the church? And he kind of looked at me for a second and he said, so we can have help getting to heaven. I said, Exactly. God could have made it to where we could do this all on our own. And Sundays we could sit in our living rooms and drink sweet tea and watch Oprah and just spend time by ourselves. But that's not how he built it. That's not how he made it. He called us to gather together on a Sunday, to gather for worship together, to spend time together, to provoke each other to love and to good works together, Hebrews chapter 10 says. He built us to be together. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 Verse number nine, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls. Has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. Threefold cord is not easily broken. One person said, trying to live without community is like trying to live without oxygen. We need each other. That being said, there are things in the world that we just can't be around, right? 
So the way I look at it, the church has three different options. We can decide to isolate ourselves. We can decide to accommodate the world around us. Or we can decide to engage the world around us. Those are the three things we're going to talk about this morning. Number one, isolate. There are things that the church just should not do. Shake your head like this. There are things that the church should not do. There are things that Christians should not do, right? We talked about in Bible class this morning that we put away, we murder the thoughts of anger and malice and deceit and slander. And we put away, we murder the thoughts of lust and impurity and evil concupiscence, as the Bible says. Evil desires, right? We put away those things. There are things that Christians cannot do. There are things that as Christians, if we are going to live faithfully for God, we have to make the decision to put these things away. At the same time, you know why we have the Old Testament? I mean, in the New Testament, we have thousands of manuscripts. Paul would write a letter to the church at Corinth, and then Corinth would get that letter, and they'd keep their letter, and then they'd make a copy, and they'd send it to Galatia. And then Galatia would make a copy, and they'd send it to Ephesus. And then Ephesus would make a copy, and they'd send it to Troas. And Troas would make a copy and send it to Crete and so forth, all over the place. We have thousands of manuscripts of the Old Testament, or the New Testament. Do you know how we have the Old Testament? Very few manuscripts. Number one, because most of them were destroyed in the destruction of, of Jerusalem in AD 70 that we talked about a few weeks ago. Number two, the majority of them were stored in synagogues where when Judaism became less than ideal in the Roman society, the synagogues were destroyed. And so all of the manuscripts of the Old Testament were destroyed. And we had very, very few. We, we, we had just a handful of manuscripts of the Old Testament until, until a boy, a, a sheep herding boy, was playing in the wilderness near the Dead Sea, and he took a rock, and you know how boys do, right? We took J.D. to camp the other day, or a few weeks ago, and we could not get him to stop throwing the rocks. You know boys just like throwing rocks? I don't know why. It's just something we do. This boy picked up a rock and hurled it into a cave in the side of a mountain. And when that rock landed, he heard something that sounded like shattering glass or pottery. He climbed up there, and in this cave, he found hundreds of little jars stacked along the side of the cave. He didn't know what it was, so he went and he called someone, and they called someone else, and they called someone else. And finally, archaeologists came out, because when you find something like that in that area of the world, it's probably pretty important, archaeologically speaking. And so they called some archaeologists. The archaeologists came out, and I met one of the men that was there, just weeks after these pots were discovered. His name is Randy. And he told me the story of how they opened one of those pots and they pulled out a scroll. And this scroll was about three inches and it was, it was long, maybe five, six feet. But it was rolled up super tight. And over the thousands of years, it became pretty hard to unroll this scroll. I mean, it's made out of parchment and or vellum, or something like that. And so it became pretty hard, because as that, you know, if you've ever had a deer skin, or something hanging on your wall, if, if it gets dried out, it becomes pretty hard, and it's in the middle of a desert, and so it's, it's pretty hard to unroll. They slowly unrolled this scroll, and he said he remembers the moment when the person who was reading the scroll said, 
do you realize what we have here? And Randy said, no, he's just, a, he's just an intern, our archaeology intern. He said, do you realize what we have here? The guy kept saying it over and over again. Randy said, no, I, I can't read Hebrew. I don't know what it says. And he said, this is Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And he read all of Genesis 1. Do you know why we have those? It's because there's a group of people that used to live out there called the Essenes. You never read about them in the Bible. They're not mentioned in the Bible. Uh, Maybe just a few glimpses, but even then their names are not mentioned. The Essenes were the people that did exactly this. They isolated themselves. They decided they were going to follow the Jewish law the way it was intended to follow it. And Rome has overcome the, the world. They have impenetrated the temple. Now the temple and the hierarchy of the temple and the high priest is corrupt because Rome has put in a corrupt man, a Roman as the high priest of the Jewish nation. And so we're moving. We're getting out to the desert. We're going to live by ourselves. We're going to follow the way God wanted us to follow. We're going to follow Yahweh. And so they moved out to the desert. And if it wasn't for a boy with a rock throwing it into a cave, we would not have any clue what they were out there in the desert doing. What they were doing was copying the scrolls. They lived in the desert. They copied the scrolls. They lived faithfully for God. But we never have any record of them doing anything. When you read the New Testament, what groups of people do you read about? You read about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and this group called the Zealots. You don't read about the Essenes. You see, the fact is, the church can just remove ourselves from society. We can come here and we can sit in this building and we can... We can be perfect little angels and we can live faithfully for God in this building and we can go home and we can live faithfully for God there, but no one will ever know that the church exists. I heard a person ask the question one time, if your church closed down, would anybody around them realize it? The Warm Springs Road Church of Christ ceased to exist. How many people do you think would realize it? Outside of the hundred who are members of this church. We can decide to isolate ourselves, but isolation is not a valid option in the eyes of God. Second John chapter, 10, or chapter 1, verse 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you, does not bring his teaching, do not receive him into your house. There are things that we can't do. However, Proverbs 18 and verse 1, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound Judgment. First Peter 3 and verse 16, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. The implication there is that they know our good behavior in Christ. We can't isolate ourselves. It's, not a, it's, it's an option that we can do, but it's not a godly option. Number two, let me just read a quote to you and see if you have ever heard something like this or maybe you've even thought something like this. The church is irrelevant. Christianity is antiquated. It's time that faith becomes one with culture and we become one with the enlightened age. It's an actual quote from an actual person who actually says that they believe in Jesus Christ. It's time that the church stop being antiquated. It's time that the church accommodate the world. And we, we have that option. We can make ourselves look like the rest of the world. We can take our, our livelihood as Christians. We can take our 
calling as Christians, and we can start saying, well, you know, the world doesn't really agree with that, and, and we're trying to teach them, and so, yeah, I, I mean, I guess we could do that. We can start accommodating the world in our lives. We can accommodate the world. We can, that person who you're, you can readily think about who, well, they're just not the most Christian person you've ever met. And that's putting it kindly. And they, you know, I don't really get to spend a lot of time with them because their mouth I don't get to spend a lot of time with them because they don't want to hang out in places that I feel comfortable hanging out in. I don't get a lot of, spend a lot of time with them because I just, I can't be around them and, and be faithful. Maybe I need to just not be so harsh. Maybe I just need to be a little bit more accommodating so that I can spend time with them and maybe I'll convert them. Let me ask you a question. This is just a hypothetical. How would you feel if someone were to tell you, well, you know, I need, to, I need to teach people the gospel. There's a bar down the street. There's a lot of people in there that need the gospel. I'm going to go to that bar and I'm going to teach them the gospel. But, you know, they're not going to accept me if I don't, if I don't know what they're talking about. And so I, I'm just... You know, it's not a lot. I'm just going to drink just a little bit so that I know what they're talking about so I, can, so I can be in their conversations. You know, that's a statement that was actually said by an actual member of the body of Christ who actually stands on one of these on Sundays and tries to teach people about Jesus Christ. We can accommodate the world. That's one of our choices. We can start to make the lines a little hazy and maybe, maybe, just maybe we'll be able to convert the world. But we're not converting them to Christ if we do that. We're converting them to something else that we've made up in our minds and our heads that is some mixture between the world and Christianity. We have the ability to isolate ourselves. We can, we can just say we're not going to have anything to do with community we're not going to have anything to do with the world. We can accommodate it. We can start to bring in just a little bit into our lives or into the church or so forth. And we can, we can start making excuses that, well, if I do this, then I'll be able to teach them the gospel. No, no, you won't. I promise you, you won't. As a person who has tried that in the past, you won't. You won't convert them. What you'll do is show them a fake version of Christianity that they will rationalize in their mind that they are good with, and they'll live in that for the rest of their lives. Or number three, we can isolate, we can accommodate, or number three, we can engage the world. I want to read to you a quote from a man by the name of Methetus. He's writing to a man of, named Diagnetus. These, these words, you know, these names are pretty important. These names are names that I think you should name your, your next child. Methetus or Diagnetus or, you know, Mosquito Net. I don't know. Anyways, all right, you ready? This is the, this is the quote. This is said somewhere between oh, about A.D. 170. Methetus, by, by the way, is a man who lived in the time of John. And he's not a Christian. Neither is Diagnetus. But 
but he's writing to Diognetus about the Christian people. He spent his whole life around, he's, he's lived, started living somewhere around the end of the first century. This is about 170 AD when he writes this. So he's been around Christians for a long time. And this is what he writes. They live in their own countries, but only as aliens. They participate in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign country is their fatherland, and every fatherland is foreign. They live on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They love everyone, and by everyone they are persecuted. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are in need of everything, yet they abound in everything. They are dishonored, yet they are glorified in their dishonor. They are slandered, yet they are vindicated. They are cursed, yet they bless. They are insulted, yet they offer respect. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers. When they are punished, they rejoice as though brought to life. People in the first century used to say that the blood of the martyr is the seed of the gospel. Just imagine you are a first century Roman citizen. And the call has gone out that there is going to be some games at the Circus Maximus. And so you go to the Circus Maximus that day. Maybe it's a Tuesday. I don't know when they did the Circus Maximus, but just say it's a Tuesday, okay? You've asked off work. You've taken an Uber to the Circus Maximus. And now you're there. And, you know, if you need help with Ubers, apparently Christie's paying for a lot of them these days. So, you know, anyways. So, you're at the Circus Maximus. And there's a group of people sitting in the middle of the field singing songs. I know the Lord will make a way. I don't know what they're singing. They didn't speak English first off, so I know they weren't singing that song. But they're singing songs to God. And then the lions come out. And they're still singing songs to God. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the gospel. Methodus understood that the Christians were not people that were going to just isolate themselves away from the world. They were not going to be people who accommodated the world. Do you look at those early Christians? They had to die for their faith. They had to die for their faith. And it's all we can do to come to church on Sundays. They died for their faith. Methodus knew that if you're going to call yourself a Christian, you mean business. And he wrote to Diognetus and he told them. He told them exactly that. He said, we treat them badly and they just love it. They count it joy when they fall into various trials, James 1. They're, they don't understand what's happening, but they just keep praising God. We're perplexed on every side, but not distressed. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You see, the early Christians were people who did not isolate or accommodate. What they did is engage the world. Now, there's a difference in engaging the world and, and screaming at the world. Y'all remember, was it 2015 when the world fell apart? When Christianity became illegal in the United States? When it became, it became so vile to be a Christian in the United States that 
that the U.S. government started putting us in prison for our faith? Do you remember when preachers started getting arrested for preaching against homosexuality? Y'all remember that? Never happened, did it? 2015 was when homosexual marriage was, uh, was legalized in the United States of America. And I remember the world is falling. Christianity is now illegal. Preachers are going to hell, are going to prison, and the world is going to hell. That, that I, I remember talking, I went to PTP that year, and I remember talking with preachers, talking about, all right, guys, how are we going to do this? Are, are, are you going to start saving money for bail? I mean, because we're not going to stop preaching it, so what are we going to do? This is real life, real life discussions that we had in 2015. None of our fears came true. At least not yet. But what did happen is now we have a world where people who are living in sin are open about it. Right? I'm not so sure that's a bad thing. Because here's the deal. You used to not know who was living in that sin. Now you do. Now you know who you can go talk to. Now you know who it is that you need to have a conversation with. Now you know who you can evangelize to in that specific area. You see, the early Christians were not people who just screamed at the world and said the world is ending. What they did was they looked for opportunities, they took those opportunities, and they used their influence to do something that the, that the book of Acts calls turning the world upside down. What they did was make it so prevalent, Christianity, mind you, they made it so prevalent that in about a hundred years after Diognetus received this letter, Christianity was now legal in the Roman provinces. Churches were allowed to buy buildings. Now we have the problem that we keep calling this thing a church, and it's just a bunch of sticks and bricks. But about a hundred years after that, the Christians engaged the community, the culture so much that they couldn't turn it away anymore and they had to make it legal. Anybody ever tells you Christianity was made legal because, because Constantine became a Christian? He want, No. Constantine made Christianity legal because he couldn't turn it away anymore. There were too many Christians and not enough Romans that weren't Christians and I have to do something and if I make if I continue to make Christianity illegal, I'm going to lose my nation. You see, that's what happens when the church works together and engages the community, engages the culture. They have to pay attention to us. Not because we're screaming, not because we're treating them unfairly or unkindly, but because we are preaching the gospel and living the gospel so effectively that they have to pay attention. And I wish that's what we would do. I wish we would be the people who live the gospel so effectively that people have to pay attention. They don't have a choice. If they're going to be around us, they're going to know that we're Christians. Not because we tell them we can't go anywhere because we have to go to church on Sunday. But because they know who we are because of the way we act, the way we speak, the way we talk, or the, way we, we, the way we live, the way our families live, the way we interact with each other, the way we interact with them. I want to read this one last verse, and then I'll offer the invitation. 1 Peter 3.16. I read it once, I'll read it again. 
having a good conscience so that you, so that, sorry, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. 1 Peter 1, verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold. Chapter 2, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Are we going to live so that the world has to pay attention to us? Or are we going to live so that the world gets to pay attention to us and gets to say, look how horrible and vile those Christians act to one another. How, look how horrible and vile those Christians act to the world around them. Let's not give them the opportunity. Let's make them pay attention to us the way God wants them to pay attention to us. You see, the interesting thing is that Matthew chapter 28, Mark chapter 16, so forth, God commands over and over in the New Testament that Christians are to be people who are going out into the communities. But I think the most overlooked passage about the Great Commission is this. I'm paraphrasing here. They will know that you're mine because they, they know how you live. They will know that you're mine because of the love that you give to one another, the love that you give to them. They will know that you're mine because you look like it. Let's not isolate. Let's not accommodate. Let's, let's actually engage the culture. Let's live to where they have to pay attention to us. And let's do the same thing for our sin. When I'm in sin, when I have committed a sin, I can do those same exact things. I can isolate myself. Nope, that never happened. Nope. Mm-mm. The sin never happened. You have no proof of it. I could accommodate it. Well, yeah, it happened, but it's not as bad as you think. Or I can engage it. And I can deal with it. If you need to repent of sins... It's time that you, you, you engage it. Don't try to accommodate and make excuses. Don't try to say that it never happened because the fact is, you know that it did. Engage it so that it never has to happen again. And if that's a public thing, let us know so that we can help you. If you need to repent of sins and become a Christian and be baptized for the mission of your sins, we're going to stand and sing a psalm of encouragement for you. If you need to, the prayers of the church, let us know while we do that as well. Let's stand and sing and let us know if you're subject to the invitation.